Hello and welcome to Cinema to the Letter. This episode, it's the new blockbuster known as Tenet. Cinema to the Letter, we break down the very nature of cinema, letter by letter. For each episode of a film miniseries topic, we cover six films that fit a C for a classic, I for an indie, N for new, E for egregious, M for masterpiece, and A for atypical. Who doesn't love an acronym, am I right? <laughs> I am Thomas, and uh, you know I think this is the end of a beautiful friendship right here. Uh, and hi, I'm Brian, and I ordered my hot sauce an hour ago. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. Here you go. Here you go, sir. <laughs> oh. For an audio oh, f- yes. format, it doesn't work, but Thomas held up a, a what was that, Tabasco? Yep. Buffalo-style Tabasco sauce. Nice. Yeah. Hell yeah. Adventurous. Um, <laughs> but welcome, everybody, to Cinema to the Letter, uh, where, you know, as I mentioned, every uh, miniseries we talk about Six different movies that fit certain criteria. And we're at the third episode of our miniseries where we're talking about a new blockbuster. And we determined new as 2020 forward because, let's be real, we're talking about a movie that came out in 2020. And that's kind of, you know, an infamous wasteland of the year, particularly for blockbusters. Yes. Oh, was something happening in 2020? Uh, You know, (laughs) everyone's being real cool and natural and there wasn't any high tension or (laughs) risk of death around every corner um but but yeah so i'm curious you know brian we, we've talked about you know even on the patreon patreon.com slash cinema two letter we have a recurring you know, audio review series where we've talked about a lot of blockbusters uh or we're going to be talking about a lot of blockbusters um that are coming out this year it's fair to paint that the two of us have grown kind of cynical about the modern age of the blockbuster right yes that's fair to say yeah um but you know, I guess, is that your feeling on the general state of blockbusters as a whole? Or is it just more of like a mixed bag quality? How do you feel about the current state of blockbusters in general? Um, I, I mean, like, it's funny because we just saw the new Indiana Jones movie recently, which is uh, quite a mixed bag. Right. We honestly just recorded that audio review, which you all would have heard a few weeks ago. Because this is coming right. out on um, the Tuesday after Oppenheimer has come out. You know, the temporal pincer movement that is this recording that will be coming out. Yeah, we're, pu- we're pulling a temporal pincer movement with our podcast. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so, um, um, and we had very mixed feelings on that. <laughs> some of the concerns that I think I, I have uh, and the problems I have with a lot of the state of modern blockbuster filmmaking is, is that things are too digital. Um, and I don't mean like shooting digital i have no problem with that necessarily but like or even using some computer effects you know it's not that it's like it's a tool like anything else yeah absolutely but i think it it's as we see with whether it's the marvel stuff or whatever with this kind of the increase of cgi and the and just how worse in quality it has gotten because 
you know, you're fucking overworking these visual effects artists to make like three movies a year. But it, it isn't just Marvel, I would say, like in general, that that feeling kind of is there as well as just this we live in an IP hell where every we're trying to mine this IP for everything. It, you know, it's all a, it, originality is is not dead, but is much harder to come by. And it's a lot harder to make films on the scale of the movie we're talking about today at that studio level that are original. And this is a very <laughs> original and unique movie, I would say. That's true. And I think even especially with like, because the problem you're talking about, like the digital and stuff, that's been a common complaint for blockbuster the last, like, I don't know, I'd say 15 years, quite frankly. That's been like a common refrain. Yeah. But I think specifically the post 2020, and I'll say not post pandemic, COVID's still a problem, guys, but post vaccines, um, post like going back to the theaters on a regular basis. I've just noticed like, there's that obvious drive where, like, you we want theaters to keep going. We want to be able to, you know, go to our movies and then eat at the restaurant that's in the same parking lot right afterward, as we usually do <laughs> on our outings. Yeah. Um, we love doing that. We love going to the theater and seeing things, you know, big and small. And I think we've noticed a lot more sort of, like, of these big sort of IP properties that we're talking about. Most of them have been doing quite terribly. Like, I mean, the Marvel movies yes. have been fine... Um, and, you know, there have been, you know, some things, the, the Batman, for example, that's a big blockbuster movie, and we both enjoy that movie quite a lot. It's just like a, yeah. you know, a counter to that cynicism. But um, at the same time, there's been a lot of, especially this summer, where we're talking about, like, <sighs> Dial of Destiny, Fast X, even, like, a lot of these, like, yeah. big franchises of the past have come back and flopped. Even, like, this isn't a franchise movie, but Pixar feels like a franchise in its own way. And Elemental sure. has been kind of, like, not doing well. Or, hell, the fucking the DreamWorks movie with the Kraken kid. Oh, my God. Yeah, that opened to, like, $2 right. this weekend. Right, Just literally, <laughs> really dreadfully. I think it's interesting that, like, we have stuff like that where those, you know, sort of, like, more traditional blockbusters, the people aren't really responding to them, not really flocking out. But at the same time, I think you get more interesting, weird influxes. Like, for every... Spider-Man No Way Home that makes a billion dollars. You also have, like, a weird, like, a movie that's technically a blockbuster made over $100 million. Everything, everywhere, all at once. That is technically sure. a big yeah. blockbuster movie. And it's insane that it was. Yeah. So I feel like we're getting at least a bit more of just, like, the chaos of, like, the old formula isn't working anymore. And it right. might be a big signal for change. Yeah, I mean, especially this this year, I think we've seen a lot of those, like, I mean, even, like, the DC stuff has just, like, you know, Shazam. Oh, and, the Flash, the Flash especially. <laughs> yeah, which, I mean, I have, I didn't even fucking see it, just like the rest of America. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it's something that you feel, and you do get, like, yeah, you mentioned, we once in a while you will get a The Batman or... You get an Avatar The Way of Water, mm -hmm. you know, a blockbuster that really kind of like pushes away your cynicism a bit and or, or something like Tenet for me, at least, which I I, I love this movie. Um, well, you know, yeah, but... that, that's a good segue, Zenny, to get into our main subject here, which is Tenet, uh, which, you know, let's play the trailer now. Here's the trailer for Tenet. All I have for you is a word. It'll open the right doors. Some of the wrong ones, too. 
Use it carefully. I gather you have an interest in a certain Russian national. Mike's bring me in. You really want to know? He can communicate with the future. Time travel? No. Inversion? Name it and pull the trigger. You're not shooting the bullet. You're catching it. Oh. Well, I've seen too much. Well, we'll try and keep up. So, uh, Tenet opened up September 3rd, 2020, after many delays um, over the course of its attempted release in the year 2020, um, from director-writer Christopher Nolan, who, you know, we're re- releasing this shortly after Oppenheimer has come out. Um, the Barbie-Oppenheimer Wars have officially, you know, the, the opening weekend of it has, the opening battle has commenced, uh, we'll see the way of the war from there, all of you in the future uh, who know, uh, this is, is kind of like the Civil War Ken Burns, like, letter it's like my dearest i've been fighting on the bobby side for so long um but uh yeah so right before you know he did oppenheimer with universal he did uh tenet which was uh it's his 11th film it was one of many films he had done with warner brothers since uh insomnia um in 2002 and there's a lot of to this movie particularly about that angle of it where it's sort of the beginning of the current unraveling of warner brothers i think starts with like all the blowout with Christopher Nolan. Yeah, it is funny to think, to look back on that and be like, this is where it kind of started a bit. <laughs> yeah, because I feel like, you know, Warner Brothers breaks up with, Christopher Nolan breaks up with Warner Brothers, more likely, because of all the HBO Max stuff. And I love the quote, that uh, this is a quote about, because if you don't know out there, Christopher Nolan, like I said, made a bunch of movies with Warner Brothers uh, ever since Insomnia. All of his movies have been made there. And when Warner Brothers announced in 2020 that their 2021 new releases would release simultaneously in theaters and at the time on HBO Max, uh, before that name changed, uh, he said this quote, uh, there's such controversy around this idea of releasing these movies this way, and the films were meant to be out there on the widest possible audiences, and now they're being used as a lost leader for the streaming service, for the fledgling streaming service, without any consultation. And, you know, Christopher Nolan broke up with his longtime beau, of Warner Brothers, and now David Zasloff feels like their weird, like, midlife crisis boyfriend, where it's just like, <laughs> no, we're doing great, everything's fine, you know what, fuck all the old shit, I'm throwing all of this old shit out that we've had for, like, a hundred years, it's going out, we're all new, uh, we're, we're discovering now, we're discovering ourselves, everybody, on Max, Max. right, Max. right, and also I got a Mohawk <laughs> and a Ferrari, I'm doing great. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, and like, and the, the the part of that as well that is so interesting is after he broke up with Warner Brothers, he basically he puts himself up as like a free agent, basically puts up his list of demands, and says, "Make your offer, yes, movie studios." Yes, though there's also that really sad little bit uh, that was recently announced where one of the guys, I think it's Michael DeLuca, who's now doing the TCM stuff was talking about, yeah, you know, we still want Chris to come back. We're open arms if Chris wants to come back. And they send him that big-ass, like, seven-figure royalty check for Tenet. Oh, uh, man. It's, it's yeah, it's giving texting your ex at, like, three in the morning. You up? <laughs> it's like, yeah, you up. <laughs> <laughs> Been thinking about you lately. 
I just drop this off on your mat, and it's like a giant chick. <laughs> Um, but but yeah, so this was a very consequential movie when it came out in 2020. It, it came out um, after multiple delays during, like, still in the middle of the pandemic. Um, I'm curious, so you didn't see this until it was uh, on streaming, right? Or, no, I, I um, actually, I saw it twice in theaters, actually. Um, I know. I, I, I went, I think... The first time I, I I made sure I saw it on like a Monday like afternoon where there would be like no one there, mm-hmm. you know, masked up. It was when like theaters were still like the AMC was still doing like the policy of uh, when you buy a seat, it will block out like the the sort of seats around you. Yes. So it was yeah. So there was just you know I was seeing it with a one or two people and it was just a you know us and a big space. Uh, and then I went back to see it a second time. It was definitely, like, a, a an experience of, like, oh, my God, I'm back at the movies seeing, like, a big, massive movie. Yeah, and then I... I so, it's funny because th- this time that I watched it for, for this show was the fourth time I'd seen Tenet, weirdly enough, because I had seen it when it, like, hit HBO, like, HBO Max later on. I had, like, rewatched it. Right. Um, And now, yeah, this is my fourth time seeing it. But, uh, yeah, what is... What's your... What was your... Because you have a, I, I saw that you have a, a bit of a history with your, your viewing experience with this movie. Yes. So I initially saw Tenet because I I did not go in a theater for straight up 15 months between onward in March of 2020 um, and then until I did the double feature of uh, Nobody and uh, Spiral from the Book of Saw, <laughs> uh, which was a very interesting double feature to welcome me back to the movies. Um, but, and that was in May of 2021. So solid 15 months of not going into a brick and border theater. So I made the amazing decision to see Tenet at a drive-in. Now <laughs> I'll say this much. Um, I did go to one drive-in a lot in 2020. I'll shout them out. Uh, the Silver Moon drive-in. Um, they're over in like Lakeland area there. It's a, it's a really oh, sure. solid drive-in, really great screens. Uh, they do, they do fun horror movie marathons. Uh, for Halloween, I did that for a couple of years. It was quite fun. Yeah, so I went up to not that one, but a different drive-in that's closer to me. I won't name it um, because I do have fond memories of going to that drive-in when I was a kid. Particularly, my sisters and I, we, we were with our mom. We paid for a ticket for Open Season, the uh, <laughs> the animated the movie. That <laughs> right, yes. Uh, but we ended up going over to the Jackass Two screen, which I can't tell you. How much I loved, like, Jackass 2 was, like, the perfect movie for a drive-in. Because during any big yeah. stunt sequence, honk, honk, honk. Like, hell yeah. <laughs> this rules. I I can never beat, like, that experience at a drive-in. So I have fond memories of this particular drive-in. But uh, when I went in, this was October of 2020, uh, this place had seen better days. It looked really rough. The screen I saw it on had, like, a giant puncture in it. And like the upper right hand oh, corner, Jesus. I went and saw like I was sitting down in my ten dollar lawn chair, and I had my portable radio that I was playing the sound on, and also there were like two cars on either side of me uh, that didn't seem to know how to turn off their lights. The only way I wish like this was any better was if I had invited Christopher Nolan to that screening. If I got another <laughs> lawn chair for Chris. <laughs> He would have melted in that fucking chair. He would have killed everyone in that place. <laughs> he would have taken off his scarf and been very frazzled. 
by what was going on, the presentation quality of Tenet. So not a good way to watch Tenet at all. Very no, bad first experience. Not at all. Um, but I did watch it like the moment also it hit like streaming and with subtitles, right. which I think is very key for this movie, even in the best sound quality. I would recommend subtitles. It's, it's very funny. I So this is a bit of insight into like how I watch movies. I rarely watch movies with subtitles. Okay. It ruins the cinematic experience. I'm kind of like that a bit. Um, and and also I'm I'm generally pretty like good with like hearing movie dialogue. Um, with this movie, I I didn't watch it with subtitles at like, any of the times I've seen it, and it is, yeah, it is. I'm there are times that I'm like Jesus, like Chris, I can't hear anything. This is insane. Uh, yeah, I can't imagine seeing it like how you saw. It. Yeah, it was a bit rough. But you know, before we even like dive too much into Tenet itself. We got to talk about Chris Nolan and our experience with Chris Nolan, how we feel about him. One of the, you know, big celebrated directors. I would argue, like, one of the last directors to get, like, the, um, you make anything and, you know, we'll support it. Like, the universal thing you're talking about where they're just like, yeah, we'll meet your demands and we'll we'll make a summer blockbuster out of the guy who made the atomic bomb. So just daring stuff. So I'm curious, what is your overall sort of opinion on Nolan, like your favorites of his, and what do you think of him as a director? Yeah, I mean, he, like many, you know, people, he was kind of one of those directors I discovered as a teenager, you know, uh, going through his movies. And as I think he's made more movies, and I have rewatched a few of them, I really love his movies. He's one of those those guys. I will just go to see whatever he's making because he, yeah, he he gets to make whatever he wants. And what I think is really interesting, and as I watched, um, as I watched Tenet, and as I I, I rewatched a couple of his movies uh, in preparation for this, uh, The Prestige and Inception. Mm-hmm. And a thing I find really interesting about him is how, you know, you hear a lot of the complaints of. Nolan's films um and it's funny because other other directors that people can critique oftentimes it it can often come down to personal preference in some cases like for example a a sort of like an M. Night Shyamalan for instance who is someone whose his storytelling is very earnest it's very sincere you know that whole thing and I think you can say that and I think it's it's up to you whether you like that sort of thing or not. I love that sort of thing. Um, but with Nolan, you, you sort of look at the, cri- the the criticisms of his work, you know, the way he's he writes, particularly women. I get it. It's it's definitely like I'm I, I don't it isn't a thing where I'm like, no, 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 that's not that's not a thing. It definitely is a thing. But I do think that his films work despite all of that because of he's a great director and he knows how to craft set pieces really well. Um, and I think Tenet has some of his best set pieces, but yeah. How do you feel about, about old Nolan? Well, I remember the first one of his, I saw was Batman begins in the theater. I'd heard about Memento, but I didn't see it until like after Batman begins. And I remember at the time being like, Oh, I like it. But you know, I was still a Tim Burton stand of sorts. I'm like, Oh, this isn't, like Michael Keaton, Batman. This was still 2005, so he hadn't, like, really gone to his depths of Tim Burton yet. He had just done, like, Char- Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I'm like, well, that's one, you know. <laughs> the next one will be good. Um, and then the, that happens. But, uh, yeah, but Christopher Nolan, I find so interesting as a filmmaker where 
I definitely was kind of like at the right exact time to where I was a teenager in high school when like the Dark Knight came out. So you can predict like a teenage, especially white dude who likes movies, 2008, <laughs> really just like, oh, this speaks to me. Like I, yeah, I've never done this with any other movie, but I saw the Dark Knight. I remember it was on the Monday it came out because we were in Orlando, my family and I, and uh, we couldn't see it over the weekend. And I was like chomping at the bit, like everyone, this is the best movie ever. I have to see it. So when everyone else went to Disney Quest, back when that was a thing, over uh, in the sort of now Disney Springs, formerly downtown Disney area, I was like, I'm not going to Disney Quest. I'm seeing The Dark Knight at the AMC down here. And so I did that on the Monday. <laughs> I pretty much had the theater to myself, and I watched The Dark Knight. And I was like, I have time. I'm going to go to the bathroom briefly while they clean the fucking theater and then come right back in and see it again. <laughs> a solid five hours of Dark Knight in one day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, you know, it is. We were, we were talking about this a bit uh, the other day about how, like, it, you know, that's, that movie, it has a reputation and, like, the, the Joker performance and so there's so many memes and whatever to come out of that movie, but you rewatch it and it, it is such a banger every time still. Yeah. I had a similar thing kind of with uh, inception actually, because I was, I would have been, I would have been about 12 or 13 when inception came out. Mm -hmm. And I remember like me and my dad flocked to see it to the, in the theater in IMAX, like, and it was it like, kind of blew my mind of course like seeing it wow i know <laughs> right it, it, yeah he has kind of remained such a fascinating filmmaker i think to this day yeah that he like i mean he gets bigger and bigger but even when he doesn't necessarily go bigger he goes kind of in a different direction with something like dunkirk which i think is maybe tied for my favorite of his movies and I think, like, a big thing for me with, like, I mentioned, like, how deep it was in The Dark Knight. Like, not too long after that with, like, Dark Knight Rises and Interstellar a bit, I kind of was growing into that, like, sort of Nolan backlash that I think happened around that time. Like, there was there was a bit of that just kind of, like, the, the backlash of, like, oh, we just, you know, he's so self-serious and he, like, makes these, like, big, giant movies that don't make any sense. There are plot holes because this is, like, 2010 to 14. <laughs> Or on the internet, we have to talk about plot holes, because that's what the biggest problem with the movie is, really. It's the worst thing you can do is have a small hole in the plot. But I think the older I get, the more I find Nolan fascinating. It's just like, and I say this with all sorts of love, because I really, really do enjoy most of his movies. He feels kind of like a robot who wants to understand what love is. <laughs> so like even though he like so many of these movies revolve around love I think from that kind of perspective where it's like it's something I aspire to but I cannot understand what these humans call <laughs> love and I find that yeah. endearing in its own way because like you mentioned M. Night Shyamalan M. Night Shyamalan has love in his heart and he's fully like on his sleeve yeah. and he's very human and emotional and naked versus Christopher Nolan's just like I, I want to be emotional but I don't know how it wasn't in my programming it wasn't there well and the thing is his like his filmmaking has become a lot colder in, in recent years yes. a lot more like distanced and this movie is like the epitome of that like yeah and i what i find also really interesting about nolan is how he's really into like cool shit 
right? Mm-hmm. And this is kind of a thing where it's like I, I see a lot of like Michael Mann in his movies as I as yeah. I rewatch them more, um, where he loves he loves crime, he loves guns, he loves complicated men, you know, he, he all of this spies, right? Like this is one of his of of his you know spy movies that he makes is sort of big spy movies but yeah the emotions in his movies can be a bit you know not entirely there but it comes from still like the earnest place just in a place of like earnestness from someone who doesn't understand how to feel which i think yeah. is interesting but he wants to <laughs> he really wants to brian and I, I gotta respect that because i think even in like some of his best movies like i think the dark knight and Inception, and even Interstellar have those kind of shades, where it's just like, they, these are movies about, once again, hardened men who don't know how to love or receive love. So mm-hmm. they lash out at that with, like, big, elaborate dream heists and shit like that. They escape into sort of, like, boyish fantasies that are just done in a really cool, like, kind of slick way. Which I find interesting, too, with Nolan, because at the same time he makes, like, super self-serious movies, they're all just like, what if we super seriously did the movie where you were in a dream within a dream within a dream or a guy dressed up as a bat and he fought a guy who was a clown or um in the case of our movie today what if some people went backwards and some people went forwards so all these things that like a fucking 12 year old would think like well with cool if we did that but he's like a super serious british man (laughs) doing it and he's not like saying like this is entirely accurate to like science or whatever but he is bringing actual like science into it he's making like actual science fiction from that kind of like dumb cool things where it's like what if we planted an idea in someone's head and like that's cool right (laughs) um I mean, I am kind of cur- curious, what, we don't have to do this now, but of your sort of Nolan ranking, uh, what your kind of top three is. Um, I would say my top three are, um, I'm not sh- exactly sure this order, because I have to rewatch Memento, it's been a while, but same here. Yeah. I would say my top three are like Memento, Dark Knight, Prestige. Interesting. I think we have entirely different top threes. Right, because you well, said Dunkirk, which I think is great, but I wouldn't necessarily put in my top three, but then what are the other two? Um... Interstellar is tied, I would say. I might rewatch both of those to sort of get... Because Interstellar, I rewatched it, uh, like, last year and just, like, floored me. For number three, I, I would probably go with The Dark Knight, so that's the one we would we would share. Yeah, I'll go... Yeah, Dark Knight and Dunkirk and Interstellar. That's my, my top three. And the thing is, like I, like I said, I like most of Nolan's movies very much. And even, like, the ones that I would rank lower on my list are mostly movies that I still find to be very interesting for all the different things they kind of try and do. Like, Dark Knight Rises is a great example of that, where there's a lot of stuff I really love in that movie, and then a lot of bullshit yep. that just doesn't work really at all. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think the only one I would say is, like, not good to me, and I rewatched it recently, is Insomnia, actually. I think that one is oh, interesting. Like, it's a very, like, despite the title, it's a very sleepy thriller. <laughs> like, I, I fell asleep a couple times trying to watch it, particularly in contrast to, I watched the original uh, Norwegian version that stars uh, Stellan Skarsgård. Sure, oh, sure, I think yeah. it's a vastly superior movie. Not a great movie, not one above remaking, but I think it's just a much better movie on, like, every regard. Even though there's still good stuff in his insomnia, like, Robin Williams is very good in it, in a very, like, dramatic performance. There's some Al Pacino deliveries that are very, you know, of that, like, post-Oscar period. <laughs> 
It's just like, right. oh, it's it's 10 o'clock. Let's go. It's 10 p.m. <laughs> oh, I knew that. <laughs> Stuff like that. But anyway, kind of get to Tenet. Let's dive in to Tenet. So we kind of teased this at the end of our last episode that um, you're a big fan of Tenet. You, you think it's pretty great. You wouldn't say it's your top Nolan movie necessarily, but you think it's pretty solid, fun, enjoyable. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. I love it, but you are not as enthusiastic about it. Yeah, I think after, you know, giving it the chance I did when it came to, you know, home video initially and just rewatching it for the podcast, there's a lot I really like about Tenet. I don't think Tenet's like a bad movie necessarily. I think there's a lot of interesting creative choices that Nolan does. I think honestly, like the first hour of Tenet, I think it's just like a fucking banger. It just like it introduces the stuff and it does the whole, you know, like oh, um, the, that line that um, what's her name, Flora Delacour, from the fucking Harry Potter movie says, "Don't think about it, just feel it." Yep, just feel right. it. Mm-hmm. And for that first hour, I am feeling it. I'm feeling into like that. That message is basically no one's just saying like, "Look, now this is gonna make sense to you." We're like very much stripping a lot of like the detail about these characters we're calling our protagonist the protagonist we're like really stripping any sort of like familiar human detail that like would be fleshed out in a regular screenplay about these characters and i feel it a lot more for that first hour or so i think my trouble with it is when um i I love elizabeth debicki as an actress she's great yes love her in like widows let her be tall in anything she let he she is tall in this like she towers so over everyone. When she's walking in the kitchen, she's like almost hitting the roof. <laughs> right. But I think my problem is just that like she's introduced into this movie. She definitely feels kind of like where that feel it thing is kind of interrupted by this really sort of harrowing plot for me with her and the Kenneth Branagh character where she is established like this very controlling, awful, like at least emotionally abusive, even more husband and yeah. I feel like once that enters the fray and Kenneth Branagh, despite his very silly accent, is also just like this incredibly like cold, monstrous person, I stop getting like that feel it angle from it. Because like with that feel it, like this is one movie that, you know, if you watch like say Patrick Willems's video essays, not too long ago he did an essay about this movie and the concept of a vibe movie. Of just like a movie where plot isn't that important. It's more about just like embracing the food, the feel and mood of a movie. I think I'm more comfortable with something like that when it's say a Miami Vice. Speaking of Michael Mann, that movie sure. rules, and it's because like all the stuff where it's like, oh, I don't get the plot elements of it, or just oh, is that guy an arms dealer or a drug dealer? And I'm like, I don't know. I get the basics of it. And he's a he's a bad guy, and this is like a cop who is like dealing with some emotional shit but also wants to you know fuck this lady and go off to cuba and get mojitos like when it's in a world where like i know the basics of what this is because this is traditional i get it it's just that when no one introduces like you know the backwards and forwards thing that's fine i can deal with that it's just when we also introduce like this very harrowing stuff elizabeth debicki and also kenneth Branagh, like in his monstrous attitudes and then he also is a guy who like put his like gold bars in from the future to his past. And it feels like we're just going to get like a lot of hats on the rack. Like there's the hat and the hat concept. This is a whole hat rack. I'm just like, I'm not really <laughs> vibing with this. If there are just there are too many hats in the way, Nolan, <laughs> take off a couple hats. Sure. Yeah, I can see that. It is interesting. Cause I, 
I am like fully in that. Like, I think the whole movie like is the it, just incredible vibes. But I, I, yeah, I will say the Elizabeth Debicki like part of the movie is kind of the worst part. And through no fault of hers, of course, like she's fantastic. But it is that Nolan thing of like, you know, how do I add depth to my female character? Uh, uh, she's got a kid and she can't see that kid. There we go. That's it. I'm done. <laughs> well, well, yeah, even then, like, usually she would be like a dead wife, which he does a lot in his movies. But at the same time, even like his dead wives tend to have like some kind of interesting pall over the movie. Like I rewatched Inception as well. And I yeah. think like Marion Cotillard works in that movie because even though she's playing a dead wife, you get a full grasp of like, oh, wow, she went through a lot of shit living in a dream world with her husband for, like, decades and then waking up mm-hmm. mere seconds, you know, afterward. And then she couldn't understand her surroundings and then she committed suicide. And now she's a ghost that haunts dreams because of cops' <laughs> sub- subconscious. It just goes around yeah. murdering people. That's, like, there's a lot to do there. Yeah, and the twist of, like, he knows Inception could work because he did it to her. Like As opposed to Elizabeth Debicki is, like, I'm a scared woman who was being horribly abused by this man and I want to see my son I think that's a bit of a vibe killer I'm sorry it's just like when she's that's all she gets to do just like man I'm kind of bummed let's go back to our pats and John David Washington being bros there wasn't anything (laughs) sad about that (laughs) yeah it is it is like the weakest part of the movie for I mean like I've, I've seen this movie a few times and just every time it's during the scene when they're like it's before the big like climax and they're like explaining kind of the, the, the stakes of everything. Uh, Robert Pattinson is like, that could mean the death of everyone. And she says, including my son. And I'm just like, Oh my gosh. Like, yes. Christopher. Like, no shit. Of course it's your son. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, actually yeah. it was everyone except your son. Your son will be fine. <laughs> just on like a desolate earth with no humans around except for himself. He's going to be good. Yeah. I mean that, that is like the weakest part of, of the movie. I do like her performance with what she's given, especially I think towards the end when she is kind of like, uh, you know, in the sort of heat of of the of the the mission and sort of you know goes to see Kenneth Branagh. Right, I, I can't let him die with thinking he won and all that other stuff. Yeah, that's it's great. Yeah. She gets to do stuff, and it's like, oh, we're two hours and fifteen minutes into this. <laughs> she did something. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you want to talk about the cast of this movie? Uh, sure, because, I mean, that's, I would say, like, the most consistent thing to me, is I think this cast is, like, full of greats, including, like, we got our lead John David Washington, who plays, like, as we mentioned, the protagonist, who is... The protagonist. Right, who does not have a name, and is very much, like, the James Bond figure, which, a big thing is that no one has said many times he loves Bond movies, and he's kind of said, like, he would want to do a Bond movie, but obviously the Broccoli's and him, I don't think we get along very well at <laughs> no. all. No. So this feels like him kind of doing his own version of a Bond movie in many ways. Because with the protagonist, um, this has been pointed out by other people, but he's very much like James Bond in terms of, like, we don't know his backstory. He's just given, like, some mission briefings, and he goes on his mission. And all that, and he's charming, and all that other stuff. So he fits that kind of template. I think Washington does a really great job with it. Yeah. I, I think he's good in this movie. I don't think he's great but again i think it is with just what he the the, he's given the barest of material yeah i think it's really interesting because like his character at least because he like he has no background like no backstory like we are introduced to him in like 
in media res as he's starting this mission. He works for the CIA, maybe? It's kind of? I was kind of thinking of John David Washington and it's it, kind of how a bit difficult it is to gauge whether or not I like him yet. Uh, because I think he's great in like Black Klansman, for instance. Yes. Um, but then he's also in like Malcolm and Marie, which is atrocious. <laughs> Though I think in all three um, of these movies, like Malcolm and Marie, Tenet, and Black Klansman, he's very much a guy who like will give his all to any of the material. Like the thing with Malcolm and Marie, sure. despite how fucking awful that piece of shit movie is, <laughs> he's just like, oh, Sam Levinson gave me this to say. All right, I'm gonna do sure. that. Oh, I'm gonna eat mac and cheese for an extended shot in this scene. Okay, Sam, I'll do that. Um, and so he's very committed, and I think even in this movie where he is committed to that stoicism of like a Nolan protagonist, yeah. uh, but at the same mm-hmm. time you get a bit of you know sort of the the influence of his daddy Denzel. I think some, comes out a bit with like, particularly the hot sauce line. I think is one of the great examples. Just like I ordered this hot sauce an hour ago. <laughs> it's really funny. I don't know why. It's not like it's that Nolan thing where it's like such a dad like joke kind of thing. Like you could hear like your dad making that kind of joke, but it's funny still. I think. Uh, and even, like, he's able to go toe-to-toe with a lot. Like, there's... Michael Caine has a cameo in this movie. And it's seen, yeah. like, right against John David Washington. That scene's very fun. Just like, oh, you British don't have a, a guarantee on snobbery. A monopoly on monopoly snobbery. On snobbery yeah. yes. uh, I think his biggest help, but also his biggest trouble in this movie is he gets a buddy with Robert Pattinson. And yeah. the, the true light, I think, of this movie is fucking Pattinson, who is introduced. <laughs> he's so good in this movie. Uh, he's amazing in this movie. Just the, the moment he comes in and there's the whole back and forth about like, oh, yeah, I'm helping you out. Whatever. They're both in their nearly identical tan suits um, <laughs> talking to each other. And there's like a, oh, um, uh, you don't drink. You never drink on the job. Um, so I'm going to order you a Diet Coke. And it's just like, how did you know that? Oh, no, I know some things. Well, I prefer soda water. It's like, no, you don't. Yeah, they don't. Yeah, yeah, it's great. He is like he's so charismatic in this movie. I think a lot of like film fans have been screaming about how great Robert Pattinson is for years, but like he has mostly been doing like weird, obscure shit, like you know, working with David Cronenberg or you know, or Good Time, working with the Safties. Yeah, yeah. his Bat emo Batman, right? And this is such a contrast to that that I think it it really shows how really great of an actor he is. I mean, even in those Twilight movies, he is, like, having fun in them, I think. At least, I would say, like, the first couple. Sure, yeah. By the time we get to, like, <laughs> the last, like, the two Breaking Dawns, you can tell he's just like, I want to leave. I don't be here anymore. <laughs> um, but, you know, him and Kristen Stewart are having their fun uh, as much as they can yeah. in those, and especially at the press tours for those movies were so amazing, where they just make up such <laughs> bullshit on the press <laughs> tours, and it's like, oh, I guess this is canon. Our stew relationship or whatever, sure. <laughs> Let's have that happen. But yeah, I think he, especially in this movie, does such a great job with like being this guy who comes in and he's just like, oh, you're so like roguish and charming and you know so much about this guy. And like, even as someone who like, I kind of figured about halfway through like, oh, he knows John David Washington from like a while ago. Like, this is a weird time travel thing. I kind of figured that at the same time. I love just seeing like these two people at a weird different points of a friendship where one is like, oh, I know this is going to be the end of it. Versus this other guy who's like, I don't know this guy, so this feels like the beginning of it. It's a really great kind of like little heartfelt story that's going on in the middle here. Where once again, that Nolan emotional thing where it's like, these are two guys who don't want to be necessarily nakedly emotional. But then by the end, <laughs> yep. with like that, uh, this is the ending of a beautiful friendship. I'm like, oh man, these bros. Want- yeah. <laughs> he's not going to see his bro again, but he's going to see his bro again later. 
It's yeah. There's a, there's a lot there, and especially like I love also his hand acting during the where he's explaining about the airplane. He's like, so you're gonna yes. drive an airplane? Well, like like a big airplane. <laughs> yeah. He's like, not from the air. Like, yeah, don't be dramatic. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know, the, the, that sort of emotional payoff at the end of, like, this is the end of a beautiful friendship, this is the beginning kind of thing, really hit for me this time, this time watching it again for some reason. Uh, yeah, I really love that aspect of them. I mean, it's, Nolan's so good at, you know, guys being dudes. We talked about Elizabeth, Elizabeth Debicki. Um, should we talk about the slice a ham on screen right brand brand i'm kind of mentioned brand but like how do you feel about him in this movie <laughs> you know i i really like kenneth Branagh some of the time i think like he's a kept well academy award winner of course for kenneth belfast Branagh, everyone's for, favorite for yeah. belfast unfortunately and he has such an interesting career to me where like he's in 90 in the 90s he starts he makes his all his like shakespeare movies mm-hmm. and whatever and then he i don't know if now he basically has he's he's poirot he's kind of like helming the the poirot franchise and is you know his filmography so weird because like he will make Belfast and win an Oscar for that, but then he's got his Poirot stuff. But then he also made like Artemis Fowl recently, and right. But that's like him as a director. But even as an actor, he would like appear in these Shakespeare movies, has like actual royal training. But then he'll yeah. do just weird things like um, near the end of the '90s with Wild Wild West, which is one of like the more infamous examples where he plays the villain, and he's doing like a real Southern gentleman style accent. <laughs> oh, no. Um, and it's, it's, that's a, that's a cursed movie that we may talk about at some point in the future, but he's like, you mentioned like very hammy. It's many, many things have been made about like, oh, he's like a very over the top ham kind of actor. It could even work in this movie if once again, there wasn't that weird duality where like he's, you know, speaking in like a Russian, like almost moose and squirrel, Rocky and Bullwinkle style Russian accent. (laughs) It's very silly. And I would not mind that as much if he was playing more of, like, a Bond villain, where he's evil in a general sense, he might kill some henchmen or whatever. But get doing the extra mile of, like, oh, he's, like, a, like a fucked-up abuser, and especially, like, that sequence where I think the, the backwards stuff kind of, like, starts to turn for me a bit, when, like, he shoots Elizabeth Debicki, and we usually see it, like, backwards and then the forwards version of it. That feels once again like, oh, this is like a really upsetting thing that we're seeing here, and I'm, it's kind of ruining the the fun of like the backwards thing that I was really enjoying up to that point. I think that's where it starts wobbling for me because it's like, oh, we're doing this like big, like upsetting emotional beat of like he's shooting this woman in like her stomach and like having her you know be seriously injured, and it's like he's but he's gonna leave and talk about like I will get you, John Devil Washington. <laughs> It's weird. It's a very odd contrast to me. Yeah, uh, it is. And the scene towards like the end where he is like explaining his plan, like when he's on the boat and John David Washington is like in the bunker and they're like on the phone. Right. As funny as the accent is and as like funny as he is sometimes in this movie. uh, Yeah, that part kind of worked for me in sort of establishing him as like a, a, a genuinely like good villain um kind of describing his philosophy 
yeah, but he's it's, it is such a wild performance. I mean, like it, it's it's hilarious that like the first scene he meets like John David Washington is like at that dinner. And John David Washington just sits down and he's like, I'm going to shove your balls in your throat and make you choke on them. It's like, oh, Jesus Christ. Especially for a Nolan movie that feels like I've never heard a Nolan character talk like this. Like, ever. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of just, I want to like, I want to, I would love to see Christopher Nolan like think of that and write it down. Like, ah, oh, yes. But I mean, and there's other like fun people in here. Like I, I mentioned uh, Clemens Posey, who pops up. I think this is a solid like little exposition thing. Himesh Patel. Who's become yes. a, a very fun like actor to see pop up in things? Uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson in a rare, not annoying performance from him. That's <laughs> true. That is true. He is annoying a lot of the time because he's annoying as fucking Bullet Train. I remember like when I was younger. Speaking of like around that no one time, I also I loved Kick Ass. I loved oh, Kick Ass sure, so much yeah. as a teenager. Um, but I always felt like this guy doesn't feel right. Because he's doing that weird, like, oh, jeez, I'm like a pipsqueak kid, even though you're so ripped, even before you've become kid. You're so fucking ripped. Fuck off. This is yeah. real. Um, and then, you know what? Also, um, just a shout out. I love her in the Chucky movies and stuff. Fiona Dorif popping up here um, as another exposition person. She's the um, the female soldier who, like, gives John David Washington, like, all that exposition about, like, oh, we're going to go into here and, like... Clans oh yeah, yeah, weird. yeah, yeah. Uh, da- daughter of Brad, and she's like the the one of the main human characters now in the recent Chucky movies and TV show. Oh, interesting, huh? I, I do love her and and Clemens Clemens Posey. Like, it, I think that they're they're good and they're not given a lot to do. But I think it can be difficult to sort of you know deliver that sort of exposition and like the Clemens Posey like scene for instance is such a great way of introducing these concepts i mean like the lines of like what is this and he she says the detritus of a coming war it's a great line but and she delivers it great yeah getting back to to like aaron taylor Dawson in this movie who shows up out of nowhere and an absolute delight (laughs) with his extremely thick british accent I didn't know that he was actually British. I thought yeah. he was just doing a really funny voice for this movie. <laughs> um, pip, pip, cheerio, uh, what not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he's really fun in in this movie. I love his, he's, I, I love him and all three of them at the end. That's a, a great little scene, especially the like, you know, when he's like letting them go and Robert Pattinson's like, but you won't look that hard. And he goes, yes, I will. <laughs> Um, um, another person just a shout out, uh, Dimple Kapadia, um, who plays the arms yes. dealer, who is uh, more known for like her work in Indian movies, including, um, I just recently saw her in Patham. Have you heard of this, the okay. Indian movie? I, I think I've seen, like, about it, yeah. Yeah, that, that that's is a very it? fun movie that she has, like, kind of a similar kind of, like, stoic role in only. Uh, this one I like a, lot, a little bit more in terms of, she has this, like, um, villainous energy but she's very laid back in a really fun way. Like the scene where she's talking to John David Washington about like, oh, you know, you're going to get this picture for me. It was a forged version of this painting I wanted. You know, do that and you'll be fine. Um, And even like the way that, especially he initially comes in, he has like her husband at gunpoint. And she's like, oh, come on, calm down. Okay, now go make tea for the two of us. (laughs) (laughs) And so she's very fun. Yeah, Yeah, she's very fun. Um, 
I also I, I want to shout out my boy Martin Donovan as well. He's got yes. a great like one scene role. Uh, role. It's a great cast, which is kind of interesting because I like recently like watching Inception for like for this and realizing like one how similar Inception is to this movie. They're very much in terms of like, pieces, yeah. Yeah, but I do think that the cast in Inception is a bit hit or miss. Like, I think, I mean, like, Elliot Page is great in that movie. Yeah. Um, I don't think Joseph Gordon-Levitt's great in that movie at all. But he has one loaded die as his totem. <laughs> the loaded die is actually kind of cool as a totem. Like, I would, I, I'd probably have a loaded die. That's cool. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, like, the cast in this really works, I would say. I, I want to get back, you, you mentioned Inception. I want to transition to, I guess, like, how this movie is sort of constructed as, like, a sci-fi actioner. As it were, because sure. I think the genius of Inception, and I've, it's been so long and I didn't even remember this, but the first hour of it is no one just like very much painstakingly explaining to you, like, here's what we do with this dream thing. Here's what every role mm-hmm. is. Here's all this other stuff. So then the last like hour and a half is like more of like the, it's not a vibe movie in the same way Tenet is, but like you at least like no. fully embrace, I would argue, like all of that. You know, after all that kind of clunky exposition-y stuff at the beginning, you fully embrace, like, oh, this, we're going deeper in the levels, and you're on the edge of your seat, just like, oh my god, Dilip Rao drank champagne, and now he has to pee, and that's why it's <laughs> raining in his dream. Like, it, 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 I think it having that sort of, like, the, the dump be what it is in, a, in that first hour of Inception, and then unraveling, like, the last, basically, like, if we saw the real-world version of, like, the last hour and a half of this movie... It'd be Killian Murphy and everyone else sleeping on a fucking plane. (laughs) And just everyone going like Betty by while they're traveling from fucking Sydney to LA. And it's still like, at the same time, you're so engrossed based on like all the stuff we've been elaborating on versus Tenet avoids that exposition pretty much. Just like doles it out like very quickly in ways that aren't really that like extremely explanatory. So it's like, hey, don't really focus on the details. Let the like the drama of it unfold for you throughout the entire movie like just quick exposition then we get this like new version of like what backwards forward stuff the temporal pincer movement stuff like that i think that really works i would say like for the the first couple of set pieces the, the, all the setup stuff for the uh art gallery where um you get like oh here's robert pattinson going in there investigating everything how this all works and then we have the first appearance of the backwards version of john david washington fighting himself that seems so cool and that really works for me. Versus, and I think by the time we get to like the big battleground at the end, and some things are moving backwards, some things are moving forwards. I'm not asking for incredible logical sense, but I just I'm completely lost, even on just like a character level, like what's like <laughs> happening here to me. Sure, yeah. This is, and this is the thing I was kind of talking about earlier, where you like you mentioned that, and I'm like valid. Yep, I see that. I like even I agree. It is just kind of a thing where it's it it doesn't affect me as much but yeah you were like in the inception thing is so like interesting as well because like that first hour yeah is mostly like exposition and like setting up the the context and the lore of this world blah 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 etc but it is like one of these things that nolan like nolan is really good at like doing montage a lot of the exposition in like inception is like through like montage where you're getting like quickly like these characters kind of like ariadne kind of building the the more the maze and, uh, and stuff like that 
yeah and this movie has like none of that it is like he took out all of the like filler i don't know it, it's something about the, the film that just it works for me on that primal just like i'm just going on like pure vibes here um but i do i, I do want to talk about i guess like we should get into like the the, the a few of the set pieces yes. um uh we'll start i guess with the the freeport one which is so insane <laughs> because like like i watching it, i'm just like i can't like, let him like crash a plane into a building it is just absolutely crazy that they let him do that and just what i find really great about that scene is not just like i yeah i love the setup of like robert pattinson going in pretending to like be a customer i love the line that the guy like like He's like the manager or whatever has where he's like, our customers choose us because we have no priority but their property. And Robert Pattinson just goes, blimey. <laughs> yeah, the setup for it is great. And then that, yeah, the payoff of like introduce, I love the way that he introduces the turnstile. I love that it's called a turnstile. Yes. They're great. Um, I love the design of it. One of my favorite details, I think, for John David Washington is like when they are about to like pull off the heist, he walks in with a teacup on a plate walking in just like you just steal that from chris just like this will be fun let me let me walk in with this like i just drink tea and someone has to take it from me yeah it's actually really funny because like the a problem that i have and a lot of people have with his batman movies is a lot of like the hand-to-hand combat which is admittedly not that great in those movies but take you i think would say batman begins it's really rough it's like very poorly put together and I, i think after that he got a better handle on it yeah not great in my opinion but Mm -hmm. like like i think the dark knight rises those ones are very like they feel very like slow and sluggish but like with this it's i i really like that kind of that in this movie um and especially when like he's doing it where like the john david washington that's going backwards is kind of like moving backwards but the other one is moving forwards and like the way he's doing that is very like visually interesting i think which is very odd i think for for him that's where i think the 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 backwards stuff i think works at its best is during like that sequence because it's just so off center in a way that's like very intriguing where you get especially the fact that the initial version of that is shot where you're at the perspective of the suited john david washington and then when we get Mm -hmm. the other one it's most of the same scene except the close-ups are on the one with the gas mask on. They just like yeah. shot those different be- bits of coverage, but otherwise it's like the same scene just played at a different like reverse or forward. <laughs> and I think that's yeah. like really where I think it works the best for like that kind con- like that. And also the uh, car chase scene um, where you've got, where you've got like those practical stunts and you've got like literally like uh, some guy who looks like John David Washington or Elizabeth, a lady looks like Elizabeth Debicki hanging out of these cars and trying to, like, jump from one to the other, and it's so tense, and there's, like, actual yeah. cars, like, fucking toppling over each other. That that stuff, that tactility is what really, you know, we talk about with modern blockbusters kind of missing. Like, there's CG in this movie, but it's all just to assist, like, these great practical stunts that are already here. Yeah, I mean, like, the plane crashing in is such a classic example where it's, like, yeah. you're just wa- you watch just a plane in real time crash into this building. <laughs> Yeah, and, and what I love about this, this like, the Freeport, like, set piece is that, like, you watch it, you go through it the first time, because you had heard, like, oh, my God, they let him crash a plane, it's, you know, this big set piece, so you kind of, your imagination kind of goes wild a bit with, like, what what a Christopher Nolan set piece might be like that, but 
you know going out of like coming out of it the like the first time you get that it's it's a bit kind of like oh that was it but then like going back to it later yes. from that different perspective is so integral and like you get like the shots of like you see the plane but everything is in reverse it's it's such a fascinating like use of a set piece to kind of go back to it and the same thing with the car sequence where like you yes. see like the the cargo bag or even just a, a great example of like no one doing like just one weird thing that makes it unsettling the fact that john david washington is getting chased by a van going in reverse the whole time yeah that's really yeah. unsettling as an image just like oh this person is not driving the optimum way to chase you but he's they're doing a really good job of it that's really fucked <laughs> oh, up yeah <laughs> it's almost simple where it's just like yeah you just get a bunch of cars you close off the road and then you just do this you you choreograph this set piece and like that's what nolan is really good at is i think like choreographing these really like operatic tense set pieces but I don't know, wouldn't it be so much better, Brian, if, like, instead of John David Washington, it was Denzel, but they de-aged him to look like Malcolm <laughs> X era Denzel? Oh I think it'd be God. a lot more fun if that was happening. <laughs> oh yeah, and then we just, like, fucking shoot it in, like, the volume or whatever and forget about it. Right, it's shot at, at night and it looks like shit and you can't see anything. Great. It'd be really wonderful. <laughs> yeah, um, but... Yeah, I, I love I love that set piece too. Um, but it, and even the the not to to kind of go, go back a little bit, but the the kind of cold open of this movie, which is the kind of the opera house, yes, which you get no context for, like whatsoever. Like you know, talking about Inception, like Inception has kind of this like intro where you don't really know what's happening, but it very quickly sort of tells you what's happening. Like the opera scene in this, you don't know what's happening. And yet it is so tense and like operatic, not to, you know, pun intended, but like uh, it, it has this really like big quality that a, a lot of Nolan's like movies have. And it also feels the most like sort of a James Bondy cold open in that like, yeah. from especially an old school Bond kind of thing where this would be like Sean Connery breaking into like an opera house trying to like sure. fight off like some henchmen on the side it feels like that kind of thing where it's like oh we're introducing you to this place where it's covered in rich people and it's opulence and wealth you wouldn't be able to see average audience member it works on like that base level just like oh this is like an exciting action sequence in a place i would never imagine it would be yeah the beats of it of like putting the gas so that all the people get knocked out and like you know this this very spy movie action movie like clearing rooms kind of thing you know SWAT team it is very disorienting especially the first time I saw it like seeing that cold open is is so it puts you in this just weird headspace of like I don't even fucking know what's going on right now <laughs> um which probably prepares you for the rest of the movie I, I feel like it's that stuff at least there's still like a clear objective at the same time that like you don't get all the details of it, but there's at least more of a clear objective of like, oh, okay, this they're trying to steal something. They're trying to get to like this one guy who's in the the box up at the top and stuff like that. I think it prepares you for like that kind of vibe that I think a lot of the sequences are going for. But I think once, it, like I said, it gets to like this big third act where you have like Aaron Taylor Johnson and his army and they're trying to like get the thing to like put together. And then also like some, there's like a huge army that has to fight like a bunch of guys that are going backwards and forwards at certain different points and explosions are happening, but then explosions are unhappening at different points. It's visually interesting, but also I just don't like 
there's no very basic objective for most of this, except we gotta kind of put, like, the thing together. But that's, like, gets lost, I think, in all the various, like, explosions shit that are happening at the end. Sure. Yeah, I see that. I, I can see that. I mean, yeah, it is just this thing where it's, like, the, the, the movie is at no point giving you, like, any, like, context for m- a lot of things. Like, a thing I found so disorienting was, like, it, the scene when, like, uh, John David Washington goes backwards through the car chase. Right. Uh, like Kenneth Branagh, like he crashes his car and then it like explodes and it, it just cuts from that to him in the shipping container. Like there's no scene where like, I don't know, Aaron Taylor Johnson's like crew comes up and like drags him out and like, you know, gets him to safety. Like you just cut immediately to that. It is a, it's a very like, yeah, it's, it's, it's disorienting. I, 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 but I kind of love that about the movie. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and it's like I said. Sometimes I think that really works for me. Like even like the the backwards version of the the car chase still works for me because it's just like oh, I remember like this previous objective here and where we're at. Like sure. I almost wish the movie really committed to just like we're gonna show you the exact same movie backwards, which they do up yeah. to a point. Like I wish That's this true, just yeah. fully ended at the opera house and we were just going backwards in that fucking scene. <laughs> Almost yeah. at, at a certain point. If it was a full palindrome of a movie that just kind yeah, of like yeah, ended that... where it starts as opposed to what we do get, I think I would be much more in your camp of just like, oh, wow, he just showed me the first half of this movie and now we're showing it again, but backwards. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, that would have been really great. I, Yeah. Uh, another kind of issue with, with Nolan that is kind of present in this movie is kind of the the Nolan fourth act that right. you know, a lot of people will bring up in, in, in terms of like the Dark Knight. Yeah, your Aaron Arc or two face face off, that kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um and I think that works in something like the Dark Knight, for instance. Um but like, for example, having rewatched Inception, that movie's fourth act is kind kinda brings it down, I think, when it gets to the whole like, okay, we made it to the the snow level. Killian Murphy's at the door. Uh-oh. Marion Cotillard's there, and she shoots him, so now we have to do this whole other kind of thing. But I think that works for me, because I think that's a better version of, I think, what Tenet's trying to do with that ending. Where, like, in Inception, it's like, oh, we have to go up to another layer. What's this layer? Um, a collapsing world of my creation. Sure. It's just, like, yeah. everything's caving on itself. This wasn't meant to happen we're all, like, we understand enough about, like, oh, we weren't supposed to go this deep, and uh, we're going to this degree. It's like, oh, we might, like, completely get swallowed up into, like, this universe that, like, it's like a black hole, like, kind of eating itself. Like, the end of Poltergeist, the house, we're just, like, kind of, sure. like, goes into a black hole, essentially. <laughs> um, as opposed to, I think, Ten just wants to give a, like, there's chaos, but it's, like... If I had just a little bit more context, not a lot. I don't need like a full exposition dump. Just no, slightly yeah, yeah, yeah. more, I think I would get like that kind of chaos he's going for. Sure. It is basically like he's he's stripping the, the spy movie to like its just bare essentials, but also trying to go big and grand. With a it's sci-fi a concept inter- at the same time. Like once again, hats. Yes. Hats being thrown yes. at you. <laughs> Catch the hats. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it. Uh, a thing I, I also do want to kind of talk about is the the score. 
Yep, not from Hans Zimmer, his usual collaborator. No. Uh, for a while. This time it's uh, Ludwig Gorenson, uh, yep. um, previous Black Panther fame, also the guy who did the music on Community. I was <laughs> going to say. Favorite. <laughs> <laughs> That's where he started. Um, but yeah, it, I, I love the fact that it's it's very much like the score where he intentionally did like uh, themes that kind of went in and out. Like the, you listen to a theme, it sounds like a palindrome. Of just like, oh, it kind of goes backwards and forwards into itself. It rules. I love the score, too. Yeah, because, like, I I like Ludwig Göransson's scores, generally. Like, I I love the Black Panther score, of course. But, like, I I feel like he's, you know, he's not my favorite. He's not, like, too distinctive. But I really love the score. And I love how, how different it feels for Nolan because it's, it's electronic. It's, it's so, like, it's, it's glitchy and just so it's so like it's a banger as well like it just absolutely like hits yeah those action scenes and plus i was kind of getting tired of like i love hans zimmer in general but i think the nolan scores of his post interstellar i think are very like familiar i would say interstellar and dunkirk I think have a very similar kind of like I, it, it doesn't feel like the collaboration is quite as like fruitful as it's been previously. And I think you know they they separate off and he's doing great work on the Dune movie, like sure amazing yeah. one of his best scores in quite a while. I mean, Interstellar might be one of my favorite Hans Zimmer scores. Mm-hmm. Um, I do really love his his Dunkirk one, although I, I I never listen to it like on its own like I do with like the Interstellar one keeping more in line with like the fact like he wants to make a bond movie like having travis scott do a song for this movie yeah is so interesting and like yeah it feels kind of, yeah it feels like he wants to make a bond movie um just in his own cold detached way <laughs> right and i think that's that's a big thing even i mentioned this earlier but in this movie he wants to express that love he just quite can't get there with like elizabeth debicki had and they were just like, I love my son. Do you have any specifics about that? I I don't, but you know, he, I really love him. <laughs> I just know how to tell him this. <laughs> yeah. Cause I also like also watching like The Prestige, which has has two dead wives, by the way. Like yep, I forgot completely forgot about that. A two for the price of one deal in that whole movie. <laughs> yeah. But like he like even in that, like there are scenes where it's like um, Rebecca Hall is like Christian Bale's wife in that yes. movie. Um, like even there are even like, I don't know. She has scenes with him that feel like actually emotional and they're actually talking about like real things and their, their relationship. And, and like in this, it is like, yeah, she is defined by one thing <laughs> and that is her relationship to her son. Well, and I guess her relationship to, the villain, but and even Rebecca Hall in Prestige is like that's such a sad character who has like such, it is she yeah. gets like such a raw deal in that movie, but I think it works a lot better in like that example because like it's so intrinsically tied to like these troubled men who are protagonists, both Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale, who are just like I'm so driven to do one fucking thing, and it's like but mm. but I'm over here, yeah, you're there, but I I got this one fucking thing I need to do. <laughs> And it's my entire fucking peripheral vision is focused on this. It has to happen. And I think that's, I think where it's more of like, oh, the folly of these men is not understanding like these things that are right in front of them, which once again fits into that kind of like that no one like, oh, I have this trouble 
with expressing my feelings because I can't. Um, I gotta like just do my one thing and ignore those feelings. Yeah, and, and like a, a through line like in his movies that is like in Tenet as well is like your family has been like taken away from you, right? Because that's in like Tenet, and of course it's in like Inception, but even in something like Interstellar where it's like he can't get back to his family. Mm-hmm. For me, Interstellar is probably the best that that has worked, and I don't really think it works in Tenet at all, really. Yeah. Because I think that's even why he worked so well, I think, for, for Batman, is that that's even, like, intrinsic to those movies as well. Like, this guy who, you know, the parody is always just, like, darkness, no parents. Like, he has that even on, like, a, a wider scale where it's just like, oh, I don't have these people, but I will devote my life to making sure their legacy is respected by being a crazy man. Like, that's what I love about <laughs> Nolan's Batman is that he's a fucking crazy person, and he never... <laughs> recuses that even though he's like i'm empathetic to this guy but he's fucking nuts right and i think i know <laughs> yeah. something i kind of miss about in Tenet that i love about a lot of nolan's other movies is when he has like these steely characters who are very chris nolan-y and then some motherfucker shows up like mark boone jr who shows up in a lot of these who's like the desk clerk in memento and he's the crooked cop in batman begins um who's this guy who's like you know a very typical character because he's big hairy dude oh this guy i fucking love this guy right who is a complete contrast to like the the sleek nolan guy who's just like what if i was just on the street getting a hot dog and then batman (laughs) fucking put me up like i love whenever nolan has these like weird random people who feel like they would be in like a normal fucking movie like people criticize the his dark name was being humorless all the humor for me comes from like random schmoes who come and just like, whoa, there's like a Batman out here. What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> like, and he has it even in some of his other movies, like Memento has that with like Joe Patliano is that, I would argue. Like he has a sort of grounding in these weird people. There is not a person like that at all in Tenet. No. I mean, because Kenneth Branagh's the maybe the closest thing to that because he is so like wild and whatever. But I see what you mean, yeah. Like, imagine Mark Boone Jr. was just, like, walking around like, Whoa, this guy's going backwards! I can't believe He's going backwards! What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I also, another thing, like, kind of contrasting this with Inception is how Inception goes to great lengths to, like, set up that team. Yes. And then, like, in Tenet, we get, like, like, during the chase sequence in they're working with like these two guys in like the other truck and like they're just two random guys like two just nobodies that they like hired for whatever like it's it spends no time oh, those, those guys could easily be like one of my favorite guys who pops up nikki cat who was like the guy driving the big um the prisoner truck that harvey dent is in in the dark knight who's just like oh yeah. well, i hear that joke is out here well is that is that a bazooka <laughs> Like, I so want, like, a, like, if that guy was, once again, like, the tenant driver, just like, whoa, that white car that's crashed just fell the game up? Whoa, forget about it. Yeah, it is interesting, because I think a lot of people will will levy the, like, he's humorless kind of complaint at him. But I think, yeah, it is that his humor comes from, like, those places rather than, like, the characters being necessarily funny. Although, I'd say Robert Pattinson is, like, charmingly funny in this right even robert um, penson kind of almost feels like he could be that guy because he feels like the most normal out of anybody here it's just like i'm charming and handsome and whatever it's just like i don't know man yeah, you're do- you're working through some shit you're very stoic but that's cool i'm being like <laughs> chill in the background here 
But I think all of those moments, by the way, feel like they come from any time Christopher Nolan's ever walked on the street. Because it feels like any time like, if he's ever been like in New York on a press junk and he's like driving down or walking down the street and just interacting with regular humans... It just feels like he's had many encounters. Like, like, whoa, look at this scoff man over here running down this way. Come on, forget about it. Oh, I have to take my notes on my parchment with my quill. <laughs> with my, yeah, my fountain pen probably. Like, <laughs> Well, you know, we've been talking about Tenet for quite a while. I'm curious, do you have any like final thoughts on Tenet? Anything we didn't bring up you want to shout out? Just any, anything yeah, you want to mention check my, check my notes here. Um, uh, uh, well, I will say also, like, Again, like watching this and Inception, both of his like very high concept like sci-fi films, I I think I love about them in terms of like the world building is a is a wrong term because there's not a lot of world no. building, yeah. but but like you know you know what I mean. I think it I love the fact that it is like it's not the near future. It's not like this sci-fi world. It's like our world but it just has dream thieves and machines that like inverse people and objects or a guy dressed up as a bat running around <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah like i mean like like interstellar feels like the most like it doesn't feel like that because it has like those like the world has collapsed kind of thing but but i that's something i like about both of his about tenet and inception um in terms of like that sort of world building of this sci-fi concept yeah i mean I'll, I'll just like wrap up for me which is say like i don't like hate tenant at all i think tenant has a lot of fun stuff to it it's like i said with like even most of the, like lower tier christopher nolan movies are at least like well i'm glad this exists because this is like so different than like any other blockbuster that's really coming out right now and it's not just because it's different like that that's a common kind of thing people say it's like well at least it was different therefore it's good not always the case just because it has like it's completely different from a regular blockbuster doesn't always mean it's like it's a great movie and i think this is a case for me where like i don't love it necessarily but there's such like flashes of like really interesting brilliance and like the art robert pattinson performance and stuff like that that make it at least like this is a movie i infinitely respect this is a movie where like it's i've talked about this with you my letterbox thing where i have like Three stars and a heart, three stars and no heart. This is unfortunately a three stars and no heart. That doesn't mean I still like don't infinitely respect this movie for all of like the sure. various things it's doing, great cast and wonderful score and no one just like really embracing it. And I hope, you know, this movie, you know, it came out in like we mentioned that pandemic and it cost $250 million, made 365, making it one of the higher grossing movies of that era like i believe it's sandwiched right in between bad boys for life and sonic the hedgehog (laughs) as like the movies that made like a shit ton of money in the middle of the chaos of 2020 um so i hope at the very least like we still get to get more christopher nolan movies like i'm even more excited now for nolan now that he's switched gears to a completely different studio and just like how he's gonna evolve here for like tenant to oppenheimer Feels like a very like there's obviously the connections of time and distillation all that stuff that's in all of his. There's movies. the scene where um where uh Priya like she's like, do you know about the Manhattan Project? And I go, well, and she even she name checks on like Oppenheimer and it's like, hmm, okay, yeah, call on your I just call that line, bluff. yeah, that line was kind of funny where it's like, do you know about the Manhattan Project? And in my head, I'm just like, 
I fucking will in a couple weeks when I go see Oppenheimer. I love that when he does in his movies, like in Insomnia, where Al Pacino's like, yo, I don't know, is this Batman gonna begin or what? <laughs> um, but yeah, so, you know, that it made this much, I'm I'm so hopeful for, like, what he will do in the future, because I hope he keeps that check that he has, that, like, never-ending, like, you know what, you made the Dark Knight and Inception, you've earned the right to make whatever fucking movie you want. I'm just curious, yeah. like, what exactly like the universal era is going to be for him um, for like how yeah, he's going to potentially change things up or if he's going to keep doing the same thing, but just under a different dime. I don't know. I'm just, I'm very curious to see where we're going forward. Like you said, no matter what Christopher Nolan does, I'm seeing it like on paper, yeah. I wouldn't want to see like a three hour movie about Robert Oppenheimer. That does not sound like <laughs> my bag, but Christopher yeah. Nolan getting everyone who wasn't in Barbie to be. In yeah. It. Like, everyone in Hollywood. I, I think I think we're in Oppenheimer, actually. That's true. If you look in the <laughs> middle of the practical explosions, we're just flying <laughs> at the top of the mushroom. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it, yeah, it's it's really exciting to like, especially because like there are only a handful of these directors out there who like are at a studio level and are basically getting to make whatever they want because people love their movies and they make money and that's kind of it's a rare thing for like th that sort of the, the three you know it making money you know the general audience liking it and then also like critics and like more film obsessed people loving it as well and he's one of the he's one of the only ones who can do that i think i mean i i noticed this i think beginning at interstellar maybe where like i remember the trailer for interstellar like playing and it's saying, like, from Christopher Nolan. And you just hear everyone in the audience go, like, oh, he made Batman. Oh, he made Inception. Like, that kind of thing. Where, like, yeah, people recognize his name. But, yeah, so to wrap up, I get my thoughts on, on, on Tenet, I guess. Like, yeah, I think it's great. I think it I think it rules. I, I don't know. Like, uh, I completely understand why, like, it, it won't. It doesn't work for a lot of people. And why that sort of, like, hey, just just vibes. Like that kind of thing doesn't work for a lot of people like 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 you. Like I get I get it. It's he's a really weird and difficult like filmmaker at times, but I, I don't know. Just the, the the set pieces are like really interesting to me. I've mentioned this to you like a, a lot of times, but I love like spy shit. I, I will just always eat up like any spy movie. It, it's one of those things for me. It's sort of in the echelon, I guess, for me of Nolan films of like I love it, but it's not, like, my favorite thing in the entire world. But, like, I'll watch it if need be um, or if I feel like it. Real quick, I do want to mention, like, another collaborator kind of of his, of, of Hoyt Van Hoytema, his cinematographer, yes. who he has now been working with for a while, who, like, he did, like, handheld, like, IMAX camera shots on, like, Interstellar, which I, I remember seeing that and just being like, Jesus a great like one of the best like cinematographers working in Hollywood as well because he also shot like Nope uh, right. which has incredible day for night sequences and also handheld IMAX as part of the plot <laughs> yeah and you know he's yeah shot like Ad Astra and like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and Spectre which I like by the way um, <laughs> but yeah I, I, I love I love the way that the movie shot I love the look of it it's, yeah, it's a, I think it's a great movie. Yeah. And you see, and we had a fun civil discussion, despite our differences of opinion yeah. here. 
Uh, though, if we ever, speaking of Spectre, if we ever do that discussion, it's going to be a lot more <laughs> fucking venomous on my end. Look, I, I'm not even that, like, I'm not, I, I won't defend Spectre the way that I'll, like, defend Tenet. Like, I, that movie, like, even I'm, like, that's got some problems, but I ultimately like that movie, despite it all. Well, right. A discussion for a different time. But, yeah. Because now we got to get into our weekly segment, uh, Between the Lines. Yes. This is a segment that we do every week in which, uh, you know, we recommend a title that's tangentially related to, you know, the movie that we're talking about, either another potential, like, new blockbuster or something kind of related to Tenet in some way. And uh, I'm going first here, and my title is not technically related to Tenet at all, except um, I I would describe it as a new blockbuster that I personally love and would, like, just recommend to anybody out there. I have... The Matrix Resurrections, uh, which came Let's out go. in December of 2021, and I have such a fascinating thing where if you if you listen to this feed back when I was putting out like some bonus episodes for the Patreon, I put up um, our Matrix discussion I did with Adam back in the Double Edge Double Bill days, and uh, our audio review thing of The Matrix Resurrections, and that movie came at such a specific time where I was like, at, I think my bottomest barrel with blockbusters of recent memory where like sure. this came out right after Spider-Man No Way Home, which I have always had very like conflicted thoughts on and was like one of those theatrical experiences that made me very worried about the future of cinema on so yeah. many levels and how well that movie <laughs> yeah. did. And then the Matrix Resurrections came out right after and did not do very well at all. Big bomb. No. Not a movie yep. that also very divisive movie critically to a lot of people. I thought it was exactly the, the perfect example of like both a warm hug and a giant kick to the face about like <laughs> what a modern blockbuster could be. It takes like the very basics of like, oh, we're doing another Matrix movie. And the whole movie feels less like a traditional three act structure movie and more of a giant critical essay with a story. From Lana yeah. Wachowski. It's Lana, right? I, I mix up their names all the time. It's Lana who directed that one, right? Let me... Because Lily is the one who directed the Showtime show. Yeah, I get their names confused because it's the both like L's. Yes. Um, yes, Resurrections is, is Lana. Right, Lana. And it's her talking so much about the idea of doing a Matrix sequel now and what that actually means and like the cynical blockbuster angle of it. But also that twinge of, like, what we do like about the idea of a legacy sequel, we're just like, man, Trini and Neo were cool. I want to hang out with them a bit. And they're going through a lot. <laughs> they're in, like, kind of a worried state, but God damn it, they, they really shine when they're together. And it feels like there's obviously so much there that um, I am a cis man. I know some people are offended by that description. <laughs> Fuck off with that bullshit. But um, there's a lot there, obviously, given this since she transitioned. There's a lot that's been mined. A lot of great trans writers have talked about that. But also it feels very much like it's a movie about her making a movie without her sister. It's a movie about, you know, trying to work within a studio system despite being a weird artist. About how, like, yeah, I get people didn't like um, the two sequels we did, but I still like them. And look what's happened since that happened in our world. Um, And I think the action isn't quite as good, obviously, because it's not like the, um, the classic great matrix uh choreography that was in even the sequels and stuff but at the same time they replace a lot of that with these like really creative ideas of just like 
oh, here's what happens when we resurrect a property. And here's, like, all the nooks and crannies, like, side characters come out of the woodwork who are, like, weird uh, hermits now, when before they were, like, very rich people. Um, or just all this. It feels kind of like the most audacious movie from Warner Brothers since, like, Gremlins 2. Or just like, sure, we'll do another one. We shouldn't, but we're doing it. <laughs> and here's just us unraveling what that is. It's it's such a great movie. I, I love it so dearly. It feels like it's probably going to be the last of its kind in terms of truly, like, consistently daring movie with, like, such a big budget. Yeah. Yeah, it is, like, that movie, like, kind of broke my brain a bit when I watched it. Um, Both in, like, how it is, like... I almost viewed it as like a remixing of the elements of the matrix uh, in a way. And yeah, just, I mean like the meta commentary on the franchise itself is so fascinating, especially from the perspective of like, you're getting like genuine, like from the heart of like how Lana feels about having made the matrix and like how it kind of changed cinema and like, everything you know yeah and like a thing I love about that movie so much is that it it hinges so much on the relationship between Neo and Trinity and their like their love and like how powerful it is and like the the thing that really like kind of broke my brain while watching that and like hit me on a really emotional level was at least in Neo's character of like the way he's living and it, it, it the movie's saying like what if you like couldn't have the one person or the one thing that you wanted most in the world and how like crushing that is to like see which is also interesting on just the meta level about even the actors with like it's so much also about like Keanu Reeves and Carrie Moss at that point in their careers and how very on different sides they are and like how they're kind of like emotionally dealing with that there's there's so much there there's so much to dig into with that movie there is there's a lot it's it's a phenomenal movie for mine i so for my recommendation i'm going with a a bit of a safe boring choice unfortunately i'm picking another nolan film i rewatched the prestige uh for the first time since like high school and i re-realized how phenomenal the prestige is um, and especially feels interesting now, you know, especially after watching uh, Tenet and we're on the eve of Oppenheimer, to go back to this movie, which is probably the last small-ish movie that Nolan will make, it feels like, because, like, there is no, like, huge set piece. It is, like, liter- it's his most, in a way, feels his most Michael Mann-y, because it is about these these two guys, and they you know, have this rivalry that is just going to literally kill them. And I think feels like Nolan's kind of, it feels like his thesis for filmmaking in general in the whole, like, you know, this is how you kind of trick an audience and magic. And I, I, that stuff being kind of related to like filmmaking is I think a really interesting aspect of, of the movie for me. But yeah, the performances, I mean, like Jackman and Bale are so great in this. Are like and Hugh Jackman in particular is like is incredible in this movie. I especially love that he gets to play two characters, which is so fun to see him play like the drunk kind of character. Seeing David Bowie like show up as Nikola Tesla is great, and he has like great scenes. 
Um, well, the and, only entrance that you could have for a David Bowie in front of like a giant ball of thunder and right. lightning. Oh my god, yeah. And yeah, having Andy Serkis as his like lackey is incredible. Getting to see Andy Serkis like act like a normal human being <laughs> is really great. It works still. Like the twist and where that movie goes is so fascinating and is so gripping and is so you get why you know getting this movie like in between those batman movies like oh he was on like an insane run during that time i really love the prestige it's it's a great film i it's my recommendation for for this episode as i mentioned earlier that's one of my top three and i think is definitely like i would argue like the most obscure well no i insomnia is probably the most obscure of like yeah but i would say of like that sort of like post batman begins forward is only like sure. the most like sort of obscure one and it feels i agree with you it feels like the last kind of tether he has to like the memento era where like that's david julian that's the last time he did a score for nolan and um it has like you mentioned there's no big set piece it's just like two magicians at war with each other um yeah. and not like a actual like magic war this isn't now you see me or the prequel it, it's <laughs> It's just God, like these. That'd these, be great. No, I don't know. You know, it's, it's secret universe. Uh, now you, see, now you see me three prestige, um, <laughs> and that has one of my favorite Michael Caine um, performances. With like the way he talks oh, about like man. the the whole the actual prestige, just like the three layers of it and shit like that. Uh, I think that movie's amazing. I definitely think it's uh, if you somehow have watched like the other Nolan movies but have not seen the Prestige, it fucking rules. It does, yeah. And also, I must point out, just I legally have to point out that it also ends on a Tom York song, Tom York of Radiohead, of course. I don't think I, I don't know if I've mentioned on any of our other episodes, but I love Radiohead. They're my favorite band, so I must point that out. And it it added points when the movie ended, and I hear Tom York singing, and I'm like, oh Jesus, this is hell yeah. <laughs> well. I mean, on that note, we should probably start playing our exit music to a film, um, but let's mention our titles <laughs> again um, uh, for the recommendations. I had the fourth film in the Matrix series, The Matrix Resurrections. Yes, and I had uh, Christopher Nolan's 2006 film, The Prestige. Yes, and uh, we'll be ending the show here, but we've got to do some thank yous, and we'll tease what we're doing next time on the show. But first, we want to thank uh, some people like Burial Grid for our intro and outro music. Purchase his music at burialgrid.com. Uh, thanks to Michelle Kyle for our artwork. Find her at Mish Kyle. That's M I C H Kyle 96 is her full handle. Thanks to our supporters on Patreon, patreon.com slash cinema number two letter. Uh, where for just $1 a month, you get access to uh, bonus content like. We've been putting out a bunch of little audio review things. At this point, you would have heard our Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 audio review, which we haven't seen as of when we're talking here, but we're very excited about that. And also, yep. speaking of Oppenheimer and Christopher Nolan and all that, we'll be talking about Oppenheimer and Barbie as a doubleheader. Talking about both. Yeah. We will resolve the Barbie-Oppenheimer war ourselves. <laughs> we'll determine who, who is the victor there. Um, and then also by the end of the month, we'll be having our um, the one big bonus podcast we have in addition to the audio reviews. We at least have one big bonus podcast a month. And uh, this time uh, for the first big one of Cinema to the Letter era, we'll be doing our top 10 directorial debuts. Yes. Very exciting. Yes. And uh, for more 
of us. Uh, find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Cinema Two Letter. Once again, that's Cinema Number Two Letter on all the various different places. Um, I have a link tree that is on uh, the Instagram and uh, various other places. So just the link tree slash cinema two letter where you can just find all the different links and stuff. Um, and then uh, you can uh, find me on Twitter and letterboxes at not the who's Tommy. And I also do some writing at marianithomas.wordpress.com at film dash cred.com. And just a shout out also on the film cred Patreon. There's uh, the podcast film cred review, which is hosted by friend of the show, Hyel Peralta. And I do the editing and producing on that. And if you join up for $1 for Film Creds Patreon, you get to hear that. And sometimes I pop up on that show as well. Uh, yeah. And you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my at is uh, B-R-Y-A-N-D-R-A-D-E-3. Uh, and then my letterbox is just my name, Brian Andrade. Uh, follow me on there. See what funny stuff I'm retweeting if Twitter's even still around by the time you're hearing this i mean it's probably still around it's just not functioning that's, that's the thing is i think twitter will keep existing it just will be a landscape of non-functioning features that people will have abandoned by this point um yeah i don't know we might still be there who knows you know yeah. enjoying the wastelands seeing the mutants of <laughs> <laughs> limits of being reached or whatever bullshit <laughs> Um, but uh, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms out there. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, our great podcast network, why listen to all the other great shows that are on the network? And uh, you can also dig into the archives in our Podbean main feed for all the cinema to the letter stuff and the old double-edged double bill stuff. And uh, if you know you can't support us on the Patreon, that's cool. The completely free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around. It gives us more visibility out there uh whether you share it forwards or backwards people will be able to, to hear it and understand it i'm sure because you know you don't understand it actually you just feel it you feel cinema to the really when you think about it yeah send it back in time to to to, to the past leave it in a capsule and for the future for the for the future to find for the future of like what's a podcast <laughs> send it back to i don't know 2005 <laughs> uh but now, Brian, uh, we uh, should tease our next episode. In our yes. rotation, we have hit E and the word cinema, and the E stands for egregious. We've hit our, our bad one, uh, at least from what my memory is, because I insist on covering this as, I think, just a fascinating relic of a different time. The 2004 film Van Helsing from director Steven Sommers of the Mummy Trilogy, and starring Hugh Jackman, speaking of him just earlier, with The Prestige, yeah. um, which I know this is the one of this lineup you have not seen before, right? Yes, this is the only one I have not seen. I am very interested in some ways, um, because I, I recently, like, last year, just watched The Mummy for the first time, uh, and loved it, of course. Yeah. Um, so I'm very curious to see what else Mr. Summers has is directed in this kind of action movie, same vein as this, as, as The Mummy. Especially so. keeping in mind, this was the movie he kind of turned down doing a third Mummy movie for. Because Ooh. he didn't direct the third movie. That's uh, Rob Cohen, a uh, disgraced, awful piece of shit, man. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Stephen Summers ended up doing Van Helsing, and then G.I. Joe, uh, Rise of Cobra. 
Odd Thomas. The one I have seen, which I, I have not seen the sequel, but I've seen Rise of Cobra. Yeah, uh, we'll talk and, about all that. The the the, yeah. the very the, the fascinating career path of Stephen Summers, um, and all that next time. But until then, everybody, um, it's time to end the show. But we can only end it one way with a temporal pincer movement. <laughs> I've been going backwards uh, the whole time, actually. This well, is I've the... been going forwards, and this is the you know for you, this is the beginning of a beautiful podcast. Yes, I've got a backpack with a red little like strap on it. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> That's who gave me all this recording equipment at the opening. 